It's always good to be uh, here and to preach and to fellowship and worship with you here in Longmont at the Salt Light Church. So it's a privilege for Cheryl and I to be here, and we're really thankful and looking forward to talking with many of you after the service. Let's open uh, our Bibles again and now to the 20th chapter of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. read the preparation uh, for the giving of the Ten Commandments, and now in chapter 20, we will read verses uh, 1 through 21, and this morning we'll be concentrating on the first commandment, but we'll read all of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, hear God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that you may fear him and that you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Keep your Bible open uh, to this passage. Uh, We'll be thinking about some other uh, passages as well. And you do have a place in the outline where you can take some notes that I'd encourage you to do as you follow today's sermon. Among the most important passages uh, in the Bible are the creation account, uh, the covenant that God made with with Abraham, The 23rd Psalm would be one of those most important passages. Isaiah 53, perhaps, 
would be one that we think of. John 1 is a key uh, passage speaking about uh, Christ. The Sermon on the Mount certainly is one of the most important, most read and thought about passages in the Bible. The Lord's Prayer, the Book of Romans, and we could go on and on. But if you were in prison uh, for your faith and you were allowed to have only a few portions of the Scripture, uh, would you choose maybe one of the ones I just named? But certainly another one you would maybe choose would be the Ten Commandments, to have that uh, with you in a place where you were isolated. The Ten Commandments are therefore one of the most important uh, parts of the Bible. The Reformed confessions that we uh, subscribe to spend a great deal of time or a great deal of their content speaking about these ten laws and their application. So in history, uh, people have seen the importance and the value of these, these Ten Commandments. So it's good that we think and about the commandments and that we pray about them often. And today I want to preach to you, as I said, on the first commandment, which is also, also uh, the foremost commandment. And before I actually get into that commandment, I want to just say a few uh, words about the, the Ten Commandments as a whole. And you see a couple things in your outline there uh, by way of introduction. We've already talked about their importance. What about their place? They took place at Mount Sinai, and we've read in chapter 19 the, the uh, things that happened as Israel had come out uh, from Egypt, been delivered, come across the Red Sea, and after three months they arrived at Sinai, where Moses had been when, the, when God spoke to him out, the burn, out of the burning bush. And so they've come now uh, to Sinai after three months, and they're prepared to hear God's word. So that was the geographical place. And another thing we might just pause to remember when we think about place is where in the Bible, what's the place in the Bible where the Ten Commandments are? Well, it's here in Exodus 20. It's also in Deuteronomy 5, the commandments are re-given or repeated by Moses uh, after 40 years as the Israelites are about to go into the land of Canaan. So that's two places in the Bible, uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments appear. What about their name? That We call them the Ten Commandments usually. Uh, sometimes in Scripture they're called the Ten Words. Uh, they're also uh, referred to as the Covenant. And God says here in chapter 19 that I'm going to make a covenant with you. And the people respond and say, we'll do what you say uh, in this covenant. It's called the law of God throughout uh, scripture. And you have the Ten Commandments referred to as the law of God. But sometimes it's referring to the whole uh, word of God or to the ceremonial and the civil law as well and the applications of the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are often called the law of God. And one term that we use for them also and that's used in the catechisms is the moral law. These ten represent the moral law. What is the moral law? Well, a simple definition might be the timeless will of God for all people for all time. These ten, ten commandments are for all people for all time. We'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, the occasion, uh, we've already mentioned that. The Israelites were delivered from slavery under Pharaoh. And as we read the, prefaces to the, the preface to the commandments, God says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. And that's very important to realize that God had delivered them from slavery and now he's making a covenant with these people. They promised already in a covenant he made with Abraham long ago, but he's affirming this covenant with the nation, this new nation that's been brought out of of, uh, slavery. Uh, And God is saying, these are the the rules. This is the covenant that I'm making with you. And so it's really very much figurative uh, for us today as we have been delivered by Jesus Christ as Christians from sin, slavery to sin, slavery to the devil, slavery to death. We too have entered into covenant with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why we respond as the Israelites promised they would respond or while we attempt to, as best we can to respond as they did. We will do all that the Lord says. And you may remember later, I think it's Joshua, when the covenant's reaffirmed, I, I think it's Joshua who says, you won't be able to do that. And again, we'll say more about that today. Well, a couple other things about the, the Ten Commandments as a whole, their division. Uh, we have our duty to God in the first four and our duty to man, to other people, in the last six. That's generally the way we uh, divide them up, our duty to God and our duty to man. And their summary Uh, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love God and love one another. So the summary that Jesus gave and that other uh, prophets have have basically said the same thing, the summary of the whole law is love the Lord with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus uh, replied in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, when somebody asked about these commandments, he, he mentioned these two, love God, Love your neighbor. And he says, the whole law and prophets hang on those two commandments. Well, one more thing uh, before we get into the first commandment is to discuss the purpose of the law. And traditionally, theologians rightly, I believe, have said that there are three purposes uh, to the law. The first purpose is the political purpose. The second purpose is the pedagogical purpose. And the third purpose is the normative purpose. Did you get all those and write them down quickly? Well, let me just explain a little bit what they mean because they are good and important divisions. Uh, The political purpose or the civil purpose of the law is that by means of threats and punishments, uh, man is delivered or protected somewhat from sin. In other words, there's a duty of the civil government, our, our government, our, our societies, to uh, have laws. And we as Christians believe those laws should be based on the Ten Commandments. And the, so the purpose of the Ten Commandments is, first of all, or at least one primary purpose, is for all people to obey them and for governments to enforce them. Now, that could get uh, into a lot of discussion about how precisely they would would uh, enforce them and so forth. But the Bible says that, that uh, a nation uh, who falls into, a righteous nation will be blessed and a wicked nation will experience punishment. So that's the political uh, use or, of the law. The second is the pedagogical, and that may be a little hard to stand, understand, but pedagogy means teaching. And uh, so I could go into some more detail about why we use that term Uh, from the scriptures but the idea of the pedagogical uh, use of the law is that the laws uh, shows us our sin 
shows us that we're sinners, and points us to Jesus Christ. It leads us to Jesus Christ. And we might say that is the most important purpose of the law, to convict us of sin and to point us to Jesus Christ. And passages such as Romans 7 and Galatians 3 and James 1 teach that. It convicts us of sin and points us to Savior. And then the normative purpose of the law might be called the purpose for guidance and counseling and directing us. Even though we're not saved by the law, the law gives us direction as Christians as to how to live. And that's the normative use of the law. Certainly Psalm 119 is all about that when it says, I love your law. And repeatedly, the writer of Psalm 119 says, I want to obey you. Show me how to obey you. Teach me how to obey you. Help me walk in your way. And so it's clear that even though we're not saved by law, uh, God gives us that law to guide us as Christians and direct us. The law is good. So these are the three purposes of the law. The first purpose is that it is for governors and leaders of nations to, uh, to, to protect the nation from sin. And when, when leaders turn to other laws or turn against the Ten Commandments, then it's uh, a disastrous, it, it bodes disaster for nations, as I think we all understand. And when we have good leaders who are seeking to enforce God's law, uh, then we can hope for blessing on our nation. The second is that pedagogical use that's so important that the law shows us our sin. I hope as we're look, looking at the first commandment, you'll see ways in which you and I fail to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Um, and it points us for our need to Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save us from the punishment in hell, the only way to return to God. The law convicts us of sin and points us to the Savior. And then that normative one, again, how we love God's law, how we want to obey it. The law is a guide for working out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Well, I could say a lot more about uh, these these things, especially about the purpose, but I've already said more than I uh, meant to about for, for reasons of time. So let's go on now with these things in mind and think about the first commandment that is given there in verse 3. You shall, have, you shall have no other gods before me. And notice how it's given like most of these commandments, not all of them, but it's given in the negative. Don't have other gods before me. Is there a positive side to this? certainly is. And it's given in Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so this morning, I'd like us to think about the first commandment in terms of its negative ramifications, first of all, and then in terms of its positive ramifications. And we'll use those two verses to start with the negative ramifications of this command in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. I want to mention three. First of all, this is teaching us not to follow false religion. So the first thing it speaks against, or the first negative is, don't follow false religions. You may just write down false religions. That's what it's speaking against. And first of all, we need to realize that there are false religions. People nowadays say all religions are created equal, but that's not true. There are false religions in the time of the Bible, and still today, paganism, the worship of several or many gods, is a false religion. It came in various forms in the time of 
of the Israelites and in the time of the Old Testament. And it's still there today. It was there in Paul's day as he went around Athens and was stirred up in his spirit because he saw all the idol worship in that city, that educated city, that highly, highly intellectual city. So false religions. And we have to say that Islam is a false religion. They speak of one God and again they're different views on exactly what's going on there, but it's a false religion because it does not have the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mormonism is a false religion, although it's a a perversion of Christianity. It came out of Christianity. And the worship of nature is something we should realize is a false religion and is very common today. We worship not the creator, but people worship almost the creation, and it confuses people as to what's important and what's right. Don't toy then with any of the practices, uh, particularly of paganism or nature worship, astrology, witchcraft, necromancy. That's professing to communicate with dead spirits in order to predict the future. Deuteronomy 18, 10 and 12 is still relevant in our day. It says in Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. You see how frightened the Israelites were as they heard God speak. And I hope maybe we are frightened sometimes by the things that are out there that we can get pulled into that will turn us away from the Lord. Worshiping other gods, putting a god in place of the true god or in front of the uh, true god is a terrible sin that brings deep sorrow. Psalm 16.4, which we sang, is a, is a, a verse uh, 4 in scriptures, says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. That applies to today. Many people in our society are running after other gods, just what I've been talking about, and their sorrows will multiply. And as we go along, I hope you'll be reminded today that part of being a Christian is that it's the opposite. Yes, we have trouble, we have difficulties, but our joy is so full as we're Christians. And the sorrows of those who turn away from the living God will just become greater. And you and I know people to whom that's happening. Psalm 115 is a famous psalm that points out the ineffectiveness of idols. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have hands, but they do no actions, and so forth. And then it says in verse 8 of Psalm 115, those who make them become like them, so do those who trust in them. That's a scary, frightening statement, and a true statement also. In other words, if you follow a lifeless, vain idol, whether it's nature or whether it's some false god, you will also eventually become lifeless and ineffective and unable to really live the way God wants you to live or really bring fruitfulness into this world. Romans 1 goes further and shows how wrong belief eventually deteriorates into wrong actions and leads to corruption and debauchery and destruction. False religion. Stay away from it. Don't toy with it. 
good thing to say to young people too because I know at least in my day when I was young, there were a lot of people who would sort of toy with things that they didn't think was that harmful, but it was really uh, spiritual uh, things going on that they were beginning to fall into and turning away from the living God and following an idol, a, a worthless thing that would lead you to destruction. The second thing is atheism. A second way to break this command is believing that there's no God. Uh, to follow that line of thinking also breaks the first commandment because you're denying that God is real. You might say, well, I'm not putting up another God, but you're denying the true God. And although the big problem in Bible times was the idol worship, the Bible still recognizes the presence of atheists and has a warning for them. In Psalm 14.1, for example, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There are many people who seem very knowledgeable in our society today, many people who adamantly say they're intellectual and they're thinking scientifically, but they also don't believe that there's a God. And the Bible says they're foolish because the whole creation shows us that there's a God. The Bible, the word of God has been given to us to tell us what that God is like and what he requires of us. Both natural and written revelation speak to man's conscience if he will only listen. And my experience is that those who claim to be atheists don't actually stop there. They can't really live without a God. And I remember a professor that I met up in uh, Laramie one time who was a retired professor, and I forget what area he had taught in, but, you know, he'd been a very intellectual man. And as I talked to him at a, at a gathering, a party that we were at, it turned out that he was a spiritist. He believed in, in spirits, and he tried to communicate with spirits. And so here was this intellectual man who obviously had rejected the true God, and I don't know if he'd at one time he said he was an atheist or not, but he'd moved from, from the true God that he'd probably been taught of as a youth, and he couldn't remain without that God, so he found some other being or some other idea and began to, to believe things that, you know, most of us would just laugh at or say, that's really, really off the wall. In opposition, then, to both false religions and atheism, the word of God declares beautifully and wonderfully and clearly in Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, it says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I, I believe it's talking to Isaiah and to all God's people, but maybe particularly to the Son of God, who is the witness to who God is. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, and my servant whom I have chosen, and that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God. There was no God formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I think there's almost... Uh, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing. I'm God. There wasn't one before me, and there isn't one after me, he says. Of course not. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. How could it be more clear? And how we want to believe that, and how we don't want to turn away from that, and how we want to teach our children. There is no God but the one living and true God, and there's no Savior but the Lord Jesus Christ. But then why is it that some who have been raised to know the truth depart from it? 
Why is it that some have been raised in the church and know and been taught that there's one God and then they become atheists or they follow some of these false religions, natureism or pantheism, where they think God's everywhere and in everything? Why is that? Well, there are many reasons, and I don't understand them all, but one reason that young people who grow up in Christian churches turn away from the true God is because many, because some professing Christians live like they're atheists. So that's the third thing I want to say negatively, or the negative ramification of this commandment. There's a danger that you and I, who profess Christ, are ones who seem to deny him by our lives. And that's something we all need to examine. And this is what we call practical atheism. So that's the third thing I'm addressing here, practical atheism. A practical atheist is one who says, are ones who say that they are Christians, but they live as if they don't believe in the true and living God and in Jesus Christ his son. And when young believers are around people too much and too long, like this, they can lose faith in the word of God and in the Christian message and in the Christian way of life because they don't see the good fruit that's produced, that should be produced by those who claim to follow Christ. So briefly, how might we fall into those sins? There are professing believers who rely on and give their lives to things other than God. That's the heart of it. A practical atheist is one who says he's Christian but doesn't live a, like a Christian because he relies on or gives himself to something, completely to something other than God. Young people may see some professing Christians who make, make money their idol, Ephesians 5.5. 5. We may take comfort in money but not put confidence in it. Riches are deceitful, and they can fly away when we most need them. Some are lovers of pleasure rather than God, 2 Timothy 3, 4. God is their belly, Philippians 3, 19, and surely all of us fall into that sin uh, in one way or another. And some trust in mankind or in their traditions or in their leaders, be their church or political leaders, all of which, again, you and I can fail and fall in. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 17, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and he shall not see any good come. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends its roots out to the stream and does not fear when heat comes for it leaves remain, its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Do you and I trust truly in the Lord in all things, or do we trust in our money? Do we trust and desire pleasures most of all? Or are we trusting in some traditions or some leader who will fail us? Psalm 146, 3 through 7 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed,
and who gives food to the hungry. Trust in that God. Trust in that God who is real and who does all these things for his people. Uh, A fourth way we might say besides money and pleasure and trusting in tradition or people, another practical atheistic thing to do, you might say, at least I'm putting it this way, is to trust most of all, and maybe some of us are in danger of doing this, trusting most of all in our niceness or in your attention to detail. You take care of business or your faithful fulfillment of all your duties. Isn't that a brand of trusting in our own righteousness? All of which these things I mentioned, attention to detail and faithful fulfillment of duties and so forth, those are good things. But without Christ, our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are only filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Are you and I, perhaps, I hope you'll think, take seriously what I'm saying, are you and I, perhaps guilty of some of these sins. Maybe we haven't given ourselves to riches or given ourselves to pleasure, but is there a danger that if someone really watched our lives, if our young people, our children look at our lives, they might say, yes, they believe in God and they trust in God, but you know, these other things seem to hold a greater priority. May we repent of those things. It's incumbent on those of us who profess to be Christians who come to church regularly and say, God is our God. It's essential for us to avoid the sins against which the first commandment speaks. But it's not only that we should think about these negative ramifications, but we should also consider and take seriously the positive requirements and the promises God gives us. In Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And I believe that if you're here today, that's what you want to do. And that's what you're trying to do, unless perhaps the Lord hasn't yet brought you to himself. But let's think about those positives now, secondly, here this morning. And I'll be much more quick with these. What are the positive ramifications? Well, you can see I've got five letters there on your outline. What are the positive ramifications of loving God and serving him only? There could be a lot of ways of stating these. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on Exodus, on on this passage, lists four positive ramifications. And I'm going to add two to what John Calvin says. Uh, The first one I'm going to give you, and the sixth one. I I have a sixth one here. So those six things I'm going to say real quickly. What is it to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind? How can you and I try... Uh, To fulfill that, knowing that we'll fall short, what can we do? First of all, seek him. And that's uh, A there, seek him. And that's one I've added that wasn't one of Calvin's. I actually added it because I saw what we were going to sing today, and it's Psalm 63, the first psalm we sang. And it talks about our seeking the Lord and desiring the Lord. And so anything else I mentioned here, has to come first of all as you seek the Lord. And if you're a person who's maybe is seeking, I commend you in that. If you're seeking the Lord, if you're trying to understand who this God is, if you maybe don't know some of the things I hadn't known some of the things I've said today, continue to seek him. The Bible says, seek me with all your heart and you will find me. So God promises that he will show himself to you if you seek him in sincerity and truth. So that's the first positive ramification. Now we're to Calvin. The second is adoration. So that's 
letter B there on your outline. This is what Calvin points out. And these things I think I'm not just quoting because they're Calvin, but I think they really are good and they're a great summary of, of what we should be thinking and doing. Adoration means worship. A Christian should participate in worship, both publicly here at church and with others uh, in small groups, privately, in the family, and by oneself. The heart that loves God cannot help but praise him. Adoration. Secondly, trust. Like a father or mother, God desires that we trust him and we rely on him. What parent doesn't love their child and doesn't want their child to trust them and follow what they say? And so God wants us to believe and trust in in him. Faith is more than just intellectual agreement, but it's entrusting our lives to this God who's sovereign over all things, who loves you dearly as his child, and who wants only the best for you. Trust. The, th- the third, have I got my numbers mixed up now? Uh, so seek him, uh, adoration, trust. Uh, D is invocation that Calvin mentions. And by this he means prayer. Uh, invoking God's presence and help, especially when we need help, when we're at our wit's end, when we over, are overcome with trouble and difficulty, when we're surrounded by enemies of our souls, we can seek him in prayer. Isn't that wonderful to know that God wants us to pray to him, to come to him, to invoke his help? And then uh, letter E is thanksgiving. Sadly, if you're an atheist, You have no one to thank when things go well for you. Who are you going to thank when your heart is full with thanksgiving for your loved ones or for blessings in your life? You and I as Christians have the living and true God whom we can and whom we should thank. We know that every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And thus we're thankful people. James 1, 17 and 5th. And this is one that I've added is obedience. I've added to Calvin's list, but really Calvin, although he didn't set it out as his four uh, duties that we owe to God here, uh, he did talk about obedience under, I I believe it was under adoration or invocation. And Calvin calls obedience submitting our consciences to God's law. And I think that's a pretty insightful thing, submitting our consciences to God's law, because I think most of us think about do's and don'ts when we come to God's obedience to God, and certainly that's important on the outward side, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount went right to the heart and said we need to serve God from our hearts, and I think that's what Calvin's getting at when he says obedience is submitting our consciences to God's law. I think that's a good way to, to put it. The Sermon on the Mount has already said, the new covenant is written, the Bible says, will be written on the heart of true believers, Jeremiah 31, 33. And so a believer seeks to obey from the heart all that Christ commands. Jesus said, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. The law of God is given to show us our sin and to point us to Christ. And once we come to Christ, the law of God guides us towards seeking him, even as we're Christians, towards adoration, towards trust, towards invocation, towards thanksgiving, and towards obedience. May these be ways in which we seek to fulfill God's 
first commandment. Three things I'd like you to take home today. The first one is that Jesus Christ is your only hope in life and death. If as I've talked today, you've said, I think I'm doing pretty well in most of this, you're missing the point. Uh, That was the attitude of the young man who wanted to follow Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 18, verse 21. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one good but God. Kind of Jesus left that point, which maybe the man caught or didn't, that only Jesus as God is good, and that we're all sinners. And then Jesus said to him, well, keep the commandments. And the young man said, which ones? And Jesus named most of the last section of the Ten Commandments. And the young man said, I've kept these since I was a little boy. And you know, there's a sense in which many of us might say that. I have outwardly kept the commandments. I was taught not to steal, and maybe I didn't steal much You didn't lie much. You didn't commit adultery. But as you grow older, you also know that deep down there's all sorts of sin in your heart and that that needs to be cleaned and removed and forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ. And then Jesus went to the heart of the matter with the young man. He said, sell everything you have and follow me. And And the young man went away sorrowful because he had a lot of money. Well, what was going on there? There's there's so much in that short passage, but at heart, Jesus, one way of seeing it is that Jesus was saying, you've broken the first commandment. You don't love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And none of us can really do that. And so I hope that today you say, yeah, there's a lot I need to keep working on and I'll never be perfect, but thank God Jesus Christ is my Savior. He's your only hope of salvation. The second thing, I'd like you to use this outline that you've had today, if you've taken some notes, to kind of guide you to pray over in your own life this week, both negative and positives. And then the last thing I'd like to remind you of is why we keep these commandments. But we haven't really said anything about that, have we? Why do we keep these commandments? Well, as we sing the psalms we're singing today, and hopefully as part of what I've said, we're reminded of several reasons why we keep the commandments. And actually, it's, full, it's really summed up in the children's catechism, which maybe some of you have used with your children. One of the early questions says, why should I love, uh, why should I glorify God? And the answer is very simply, because he made me and takes care of me. We could say, why should I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength? Because he loves you, and because he takes care of you. And I might add, because he redeemed you from your sins by sending his only son to die on the cross for you. God's promises are true. He's made you in his image for his glory, and he will take care of you throughout life. Why should you not praise him? He will provide for you and protect you as he has always done. Why should you not praise him? And he will bring you someday through death into his eternal glory. As Thomas Watson put it back in the 1600s, and as I'm paraphrasing today, hopefully in more modern language, to obey this first commandment is the delightful thing to do, the right thing to do, the wise thing, the thing that is most beneficial to you, the honorable thing, and the thing you have promised. None ever had cause to regard loving and serving, none ever had cause to regret loving and serving God, but many in eternity will regret 
following idols. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God Almighty, that you are the creator of heaven and earth, that you are the one who controls all providence, and that that is for the good of your people, and that through Jesus Christ you've brought salvation and forgiveness and new life into the world. We pray that all of us might turn away from false gods, put our trust in you, the living God, and cling to your Son, our Savior. And Father, we pray that day by day uh, you will forgive us as we fall short. But we do love your law, and you said that your commandments are not burdensome, and we thank you for that. They are truth and right and justice, and they are things that bless your people and bless a nation if it follows them. So Lord, thank you for your law today. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. And bless this your people as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.